Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the only thing that would make me believe in a god is if I could walk out of this studio and find it a balmy 60 degrees with no snow anywhere in sight. Make me a believer, please. What, what if there's a god, but it's a Norse god, and that's, this is the way he thinks, that, wow, they should like this. <laughs> Uh, you can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM, WPJC, in Pontiac, Illinois. And as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? And back from his trip to Canada, Mr. Justin Schieber. Oh, what's it all about? A boot. A boot. That's what I meant to say. Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Howdy. Also joining us today in the studio, we have a very special guest, friend of the show, Jordan Fett. Thank you. That, to be here. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did, yeah. It's, it's like Boba? Like Boba. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like really. how you have your smooth radio voice on now. Hi, thank you, Dave. Yes. <laughs> He's ready for NPR. He knows this is public radio. I feel like I was born Jordan. for this moment. <laughs> Jordan's <laughs> an old friend of mine and also a listener to the show, but uh, he joins us on the show today because as far as my friends go, I don't know anybody who knows this uh, creationism evolution debate better than Jordan does. And so... Uh, we thought it'd be fun to have him on to help us take apart that fantastic debate we saw this week between Bill Nye, <laughs> the science guy, and mm-hmm. Ken Ham. Is but, fantastic the word you're using to describe it? Uh, yeah, I guess they can't I see have the other words. They can't see the scare quotes right, right. <laughs> uh, that, that I'm using here in the studio. But uh, but yeah, more on that debate later. Yes, we've also got God things like you, counter apologetics, a whole lot of uh, creationism talk. Um, but let's start off here with a look towards one of the stories we talked about last time. We have an update on the UN versus the Vatican. Things got even more exciting. On the last episode, we talked about the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, which uh, the Vatican was a signatory to that. Mm -hmm. The Vatican had to come uh, before a committee in the UN to give an account of what they've done to prevent child abuse It was a very, very serious proceeding with uh, victims' rights groups and others there to uh, keep the church accountable. And uh, we praised the committee for not going soft on the Vatican Mm -hmm. but actually uh, bringing a lot of evidence and some forceful words. Uh, But at that time, the report had not – the official report from the UN committee had not been released. Well, that was released just last week. And uh, and again, it was scathing and made some pretty serious recommendations. And I mean just looking at a list of the things the, the committee tells the Vatican to stop doing is in itself a pretty robust case for the fact that the Holy See has been complicit in a lot of these mm-hmm. things. Here's what the report recommends the church do. 
stop obstructing efforts by victims advocates in the countries where they are trying to extend the statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. We've seen that even here in America. Here in America, Ireland, right? Yeah. Just recently we saw the Milwaukee archdiocese. Yep. Uh, people were pushing there to extend the statute of limitations that would allow them to uh, – victims to pursue some of these abusing priests and yeah, the Vatican tries to stop that. They They hire lawyers and try to prevent – those from taking place. So that was one. Stop insisting that victims sign confidentiality agreements, swearing them to silence as a condition for receiving compensation. Mm-hmm. Help birth parents locate children who are taken from them for adoption out of Catholic institutions, uh, which I just recently discovered is actually a big deal. I, uh, I, yeah. Apparently, I apparently, there's a whole documentary out right now about uh, what about this going on in Ireland. Uh, a lot of parents can't can't actually find uh, their children who were at these orphanages and well and the, also- last, the last recommendation they had was to identify, count and financially support children fathered by Catholic priests ah. uh, without imposing confidentiality confidentiality agreements on the mothers. Their other demands were, of course, release for prosecution all of these mm. priests that have abused that they're hiding. And they want the records on the abuse of priests to be fully opened to the public. Um, Wouldn't it be remarkable if they did that? I mean, that would be we, – we've been calling for that um, since day one of this show. That is what needs to happen. I don't think it will, but uh, at least now a organization with some power behind it is saying this is what you need to do. Yeah, our information comes from the New York Times. I still think the New York Times covers these types of issues, scandals within the Catholic Church. They cover these more thoroughly and more seriously than any other news outlet I've mm-hmm. ever seen. So I go to them for these types of issues. They did point out that part of this might be to put pressure on Pope Francis because he has just announced, or rather back in December he announced, that he's creating a commission on child abuse. But there haven't been any kind of concrete steps that have been seen so far to yeah. put that commission uh, into the, effect. The members and the mission of the whole of that group haven't even been specified, so it's unclear as to what. Well, it's difficult to find enough people to form a commission who haven't been accused of child abuse. <laughs> I mean, they have limited resources here, people. It's actually only about one percent of priests who, uh, but still, that's yeah. when you consider how many priests. <laughs> that's a, the one percent is a lot. It's a large number. The New York Times article thinks this might be to kind of light a fire under Pope Francis. Well, I mean, let's face it. Francis has been a pretty good darling of the media. Yeah. Hasn't always made concrete steps to back up the nice language. Maybe this will add a little bit of pressure. Much better chance with him than there ever yeah. would have been with Benedict. I'm not sure it'll work though, because the Vatican spokesmen are still seeming to deny that there's a problem, and they had a great response to this report. Unfortunately, because the report decided to take on some uh, sacred Catholic beliefs, like. Mm. <laughs> It actually recommended that the church change its canon laws on a few things, <laughs> including yeah, access to contraception and uh, and other things like that. And, and, and refrain from believing in the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> so unfortunately, the major headline you would have seen on the internet or most news publications was UN tries to force Vatican into changing its doctrines. 
And so, yep, that's what the Vatican objected to, and that's what's the big soundbite that's going around right now. Uh, unfortunately, Bible? taking the le- the focus off of where it's supposed to be on these abusive priests. Right, and, and if, if I'm reading this correctly, it seems like these doctrinal suggestions were the small part in the report, and that the vast majority of the report was actually you know, giving these suggestions of how they can move forward to actually correct the, the wrongs that they've done. Realistically, we're not going to get a huge immediate overhaul in the Catholic Church, but what we can hope for is perhaps small changes over time, which leads us to our discussion... Nice transition. Yeah, thank you. Of uh, the debate that took place this week between uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, whom I, I think we can say we all love dearly. Bill, 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 Bill. Bill. Uh, I grew up watching Bill Nye, the science guy. Actually, I grew up watching Bill Nye on Almost Live, the sketch show he was on before he was Bill Nye, the science guy. He used to run on Comedy Central. It was originally just in Seattle. Before that, he was on the Back to the Future cartoon show. Was he he, Yeah, he he did the token little science experiment at the end. Bill Nye. My Bill Nye connections go deeper than yours. Fair enough. (laughs) This week, he debated creation scientist – and purveyor of the Creationist Museum, Ken Ham. Now, how do we want to start talking about this, guys? Because <laughs> First by saying that your use of the word scientist there had a very loose... I'm using Ken Ham's... Uh, I was going to say we should start the, talking about this by taking a deep breath yeah. and a shot of liquor. <laughs> I assume a lot of our listeners out there listened to or watched this debate live or have since seen it. It, it was big news. There were celebrities tweeting about it while it was going on. So a lot of people probably saw this, suffered through the more than two hours of it, approaching mm-hmm. three hours, I think. Yeah, with Q&A. When you Q&A. Yeah. Um, first off, initial reaction. We'll, we'll look big picture and then we'll, we'll try to focus on some of the actual arguments that go on. Who won the debate? Well, I got to say, I thought from the very beginning that Bill Nye was going to lose hands down. I mean, as far as in the well, you his performance you, in the debate, that you hoped he would lose on Facebook. What, yeah, what well, did you mean by actually that? because because I am I am really tired of watching people on our side, skeptics, lose these types of debates mm. to apologists to these creationists because typically the the debaters on our side don't take the issue seriously enough. They mm. they know these guys are quacks and so they figure they don't have to prepare a decent argument. Right. They just go in, share the evidence for evolution and that's it. They don't realize there's a whole pseudoscience built around mm. this creationism. They don't try to learn their opponent's arguments. And since this was so publicized, yeah, I did. I made a little snarky comment on Facebook. You know what? I think he's going to lose and I hope he's going to lose because it will send a message to our side to take this stuff more seriously. Mm. Well, luckily, I was wrong. <laughs> I don't actually think Nye did fantastic in the debate, but Ken Ham did horribly. And uh, I think almost everybody who watched that felt that Nye really? kicked his Ken butt. Ken Ham had two points that he made over and over again. That's not how you win a debate is just by <laughs> saying the same things over Well, there's a book. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. That joke. Uh, Justin, you're our, our big debater here. What did you think? Who won the debate? Um, well, I, I would just want to uh, second what Jeremy said. Uh, I was extremely skeptical that he would be able to actually familiarize himself with 
uh, Ham's position as well. Um, but I was very pleasantly surprised. I felt that he actually showed that he did take some significant time and and, and educate himself on on Ham's arguments and Ham's approach to these issues. So I was really happy to see that. And also, um, I've seen clips of Nye debating things on on you know pundit news shows and stuff. Yeah. And I was worried that because of what I've seen on there, that he might kind of lose his temper and kind he, of he has be damaging past, to the whole yeah. situation and make himself look bad in that way. But that he was incredibly yeah. calm. Um, I was I was really happy with the yeah. performance. He was much calmer than I was while listening to it. Uh, Luke, did you? Follow the debate. I read the. I read a transcript of it. I don't know. I watch it because that takes way less time than actually. Yeah, <laughs> I could edit out all the ums and stuff. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the. Um, yeah, I mean. Although it, that, it, it's interesting too because um, Jordan, Jeremy, and Justin. Dear God, there's three J's in the room. <laughs> uh -oh. You guys all watched the debate, right? And watched it live. Yes. I listened to it primarily in audio form, so I didn't have the visual. And Luke, you read a transcript, so we all have very different uh, experiences. Well, one guy sweated, the other it. had a tan, so I think. Well, people, I, I was wondering if we're going to have no, a, wait, a Nixon, that was Nixon Kennedy. Kennedy. I was going uh, back to both. Both were visibly nervous, but I think um, Ham Ham more so. Oh, really? I, yeah. I I've never seen Bill Nye angrier, though. I mean, I especially <laughs> when he shouted, "I'm sorry, your arguments are utterly insufficient." I was like, "Oh my goodness." <laughs> No more, no more, Mister Nice Nye. <laughs> and Jordan fits right in. Uh, so, Luke, what did, what did you think in reading no, I mean, the transcript? Here, here's the thing. I mean, this is probably obvious to some, a lot of other people, but it really struck me that what the debate about is not is not evidence. It's the nature of knowledge. It's an epistemological debate. Yeah. So, they, what they're arguing is what constitutes knowledge. And and I think like what Jer there's tinges of Jeremy. What Jeremy said here is that Ham admitted. That his epistemology was different. He starts yeah. with the Bible and proceeds from there, and ends with the Bible. And so I think, like Jeremy said, a lot of a lot of uh, in the past, a lot of evolution type sciencey people, when they debate, are shocked that that is the case. Where they're like, well, I thought we we're going to talk about carbon dating and the cesium, right. whatever, you know. And, and then they're shocked when they get to flashy rhetorical things that creationists use, or like, I believe in a book. Um, but I think it's it's pretty obvious right quickly when you start looking at what they said that the um, that they are talking about the nature of knowledge itself in a very different way. Yeah. And what, what constitutes an, an argument or evidence? Like, you know, Ham would use emotional appeals or mm -hmm. things that we would be like, right away, we'd be like, eh, that's, you can't use that in a debate, but that works on that side. So that when creationists look at that, they would probably right now say, you know, Ham won these and these points because I agreed with what he was saying. They didn't call out the structural flaws in what he was saying. One of my criticisms of Bill Nye is that he didn't go for a lot of the cheap yeah. points. And and as a result, like when he was trying to be funny, and I think Bill Nye is a funny guy, it just fell on deaf ears with the audience because Ken Ham is this, you know, he's goofy and I've got this book here, blah, 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 you know. Um, but Bill Nye had a bunch of moments where he just – Bomb. Well, you got to remember his audience, though. He's in. Well, it, he's it, in the Creation Museum itself. And, mean, and these people look he's at in him the as heart of the beast, the advocate yeah. for the devil. You know, that is the moment that he <laughs> lost the debate. I'm sorry, and we'll talk more about this later. I'm I don't sure. accept that he lost the debate. I, I think <laughs> not having even the to debate the people who were there. I think having the debate is a loss. But uh, I'm pro I know in this room I'm in the minority. But uh, um, I just with Ken Ham's opening statement, I went. Okay, this is over. Bill Nye can say whatever he wants. They're arguing from two completely different ends of the spectrum, and there is n no one was convinced by this debate either way. 
You had people who already believed in evolution who said, oh, yeah, Bill Nye did great. And we can objectively say, oh, they're both good speakers. They're both blah, blah, blah. Ken Ham's arguments weren't as good. He didn't need to make an argument. He didn't have evidence and he wasn't trying to promote evidence. Bill Nye was. So, I mean, depending on what you were looking for, you got out of the debate. It, unless you were looking for an actual discussion of issues, which I don't think happened. Yeah, but actually when you, when you look at the the results of what people thought who watched the debate, ChristianToday.com had an online poll, assuming most of the people who go to Christian Today are Christians mm-hmm. and are sympathetic to But that. are the young earth creations? Well, that was the thing. The 92 percent, there were 42,000 respondents mm-hmm. uh, to the poll, 92 percent said Nye won it hands down. I did a quick look at most of the creationist blogs that I had in my Google Reader, used to have in my Google Reader, and it sounded like the way we usually sound after a debate like this. People saying, well, we may have had the superior worldview, but we got our – we got our butts wiped in this debate. Because the arguments weren't as good. He didn't comport himself as well. I don't he, think people did actually walk away from this uh, thinking their side won necessarily. There were a lot of people who recognized that i off the floor. The about a discussion like this, which I think is a very important discussion about creationism, is that people's minds are being changed. And I don't think anyone's mind was changed by this. I think all we did – was show validity to creationist arguments by making this a big public spectacle that Bill Nye is deigning to talk to Ken Ham about science. No one should talk to Ken Ham about science. I disagree. And okay. Only because I I used to be a believer in a, a form of creationism known as intelligent design. And mm-hmm. if my biology professor my sophomore year of college hadn't had this debate with me – then I would still believe it, I think, today. But was it a public debate like this? It was or was in a it... classroom. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. it was nerve-wracking. But that being said, I, I, I think that Nye won the debate not because necessarily he had better arguments than Ham or he did a better job you know, convincing the audience. I think he won the debate because, I mean, if you look at who Bill Nye is, he's first and foremost like a science um, educator. I mean, that's his passion. And I have to believe that for a massive audience of people, this was maybe their first exposure to science, to the idea of science as a a, a wonderful endeavor of discovery, um, e- or even to some of the main ideas of evolution that Bill Nye was able to kind of incorporate into his arguments. And so I, I never look at an opportunity to educate as a as a loss because, yeah, maybe maybe at one point someone may not be – and Luke can probably comment on this better, not be ready to accept the arguments mm-hmm. or, or maybe resistant to those arguments. But hearing those arguments kind of plants that seed, I think, a little bit. Absolutely. And I think it was yeah. a good a good science lecture that he gave, most of which didn't mm-hmm. really rely on what Ken Ham had to say because Ken Ham wasn't saying much of anything. Uh, and it was a good lecture and I'm glad that's out there. But I, I still question – using this as a platform to get that message out there. So, I think there are better ways to I mean so the, the argument is that museum. it legitimizes this debate. Absolutely. But we live in a country where over half of the citizens actually think it's already a legitimate yeah. debate. In my mind, debating creationists legitimizes creationism only when the debater for the evolution side comes in completely unprepared and gets his gets his ass kicked. But that's not what we saw here. And 
what I saw was every media outlet, ABC, NBC, Business Insider, Weekly. I mean you could just go down the list, stuff that have – that you usually wouldn't cover this, mm-hmm. had headlines saying Bill Nye destroys mm-hmm. creationist. Mm-hmm. And I see all this dialogue going on in my Facebook feed, including people who are not my friends because they're atheists. They're Christians. They're religious people. Mm-hmm. Getting into these arguments, to me, this was an incredible boon. So you think for, it is spurning actual conversation? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's making the evolution side, uh, you know, look really good. I mean, there's a whole, there's like overnight a little industry of internet memes that have popped up, <laughs> just laying that's, waste. But that's the internet. Too. Well, yeah, you know, but, I mean, that's, but well. it means it's on people's. Have you seen a comparable reaction to any of these previous creationist evolution debates? We, we I've never be- seen a response, a popular response like this to mm. to these debates before. See, we always bemoan the fact that, that 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 creation in, or religious people, when they look at these things, they focus on the emotional rather than the evidentiary yes. factors. Be that as it may, if you are sort of a, a Christian creationist watching this and you see somebody who's not one of the nerdy scientists who's scary, worldview, cold and bleak, Darwinist, but – funny, life-affirming yeah. Bill He's Nye. He's wearing a bow tie. So, Come on. Right. So if you look at him and say, this guy believes in evolution, and I'm not sure if I want to because we've talked before about how you mm-hmm. shouldn't do this, but people believe or disbelieve on the basis of the implications of something, not the evidence. Well, if you see this guy there, that might plant a mustard seed of things like, well, maybe it's possible to believe in evolution and be a scientist and be fun and be appealing yeah. and not one of the things before. So I think on that level, even though it's a bad thing that people believe stuff for emotional reasons – there's a in there that if somebody can, well, we have, can have a good emotional yeah. argument like Carl Sagan or Bill Nye, then that is convincing. It. I'm, I'm much happier that Bill Nye did this than Richard Dawkins oh, or Christopher Hitchens. Even yeah. you know, I mean, this was sure. Jerry Coyne or yeah. or you know, because PZ those guys Myers. would devastate yeah. them, but they would wouldn't they would probably be less likely to convince people because it's too scary and they're and they're too sort of cold sciencey people. It's more of an, a debater for the atheist rather than a debater for the purposes of changing someone's mind. Because it's a more dislike emotionally fact, satisfying but, debate for us. Yeah, I mean, we all wished maybe Christopher Hitchens had hitched slapped some of Ham's arguments. That's satisfying to us to see that sort of intellectual firepower devastating the opponents, but it's not likely to change very many minds. And like it or not, emotional appeals change minds of people who are the types that we want to change. Right. And I don't know necessarily that it was – I mean I understand the point you're making. I I wouldn't say that – they were emotional appeals. I think that the fact that he was like, – he carried himself as a No, that's nice what I mean. Not that he yeah, said just, emotional just his um, presentation. That, that obviously, everything. as you said, is going to make people less resistant to the points he's making. And you know, absolutely, if we had someone – a more firebrand approach to mm-hmm. the thing – you know, you're going to have people using that as an excuse to kind of tune out. Yep. What we need is a female to carry a baby on a sling on stage <laughs> and debate and say, I'm a, I'm a loving mother. Here's my baby. Breastfeed it yeah, while she's debating. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's when you lost it is when they started nursing that's during right. the debate. Uh, that as was, a patriot I was going to say she had a shawl over her. I was really but, sympathetic until I saw that boob. And, you know, one <laughs> thing. She's a whore. One thing I was thinking about, though, was all of the arguments that Ken Ham made None of them were new, I guess I should say. None of his arguments were new. And the more that people who are educated about evolution can actually get out there and um, engage, not in debate, but just conversation and educate people on what evolution really means. I mean, most people don't even know what evolution is. Like, as it's defined on a test question, it's 
It's the change in allele frequencies within populations, which is important because a lot of people think it's one animal turning into another animal or one species right. turning. It's population Wait, so how do you genetics. Explain the X Men. <laughs> it's on their X chromosome. Right. Yeah. I've been doing research on things like what, what are the factors that predict people's acceptance or, or non-acceptance of evolution, and that is in fact what some of the research finds is, and this makes it, I guess, maybe even more worrisome. But even the people who are willing to admit that they believe in evolution, I'm making air quotes here. Don't even understand what it is. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. science teachers that teach evolution. So some of the articles that I've been reading would say that people are like you had said, Jordan, might say that they're evolutionists, but they misunderstand it to be a transformational thing right. with like an individual Lamarckian stuff, passing on traits, as opposed to changes in population frequency. And the, one of the reasons they do that is because if you think about that, that's even more directionless and bleak to say whatever you do during your lifetime it doesn't matter. It's just a shift over time in population mm-hmm. frequency and the basis of pressure and people consistently get that wrong. Right. They, they don't seem to get the even more cold directionless hand of things just shifting gradually over the eons like you know selection right. factors that have nothing to do with your behavior as an individual whatsoever. You're bowing us out, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> There's two issues here. One is why people don't accept evolution in favor of creationism. The second issue is why is it that evolution itself is hard to understand? Even if so, even if somebody's now, let's say we've moved beyond, maybe somebody's emotionally ready to say, let me think about some of the stuff that Bill Nye had to say. Even then, there would be a barrier, s- several barriers to understanding, truly understanding what it is. Yeah, I think that evolution, I mean, it it plays on a number of very counterintuitive notions that we just haven't really evolved to really comprehend. And if we evolved from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys around? Right. There are kinds of assumptions of essentialism or, you know, thinking about just extremely deep time and those are just difficult things to comprehend let's talk about cognitive limitations you said essentialism that's one of the big barriers that people has is that they view if you remember the fable of the duckling and the swan it becomes it looks different but then it becomes the swan that's an essentialist sort of tale in that it appeals to there's something inherent you're born with that you follow that trajectory and people have a tendency to essentialize all over the place it's good as a limited metaphor, but it doesn't do that – what we talked about before. The correct interpretation is really a population shift, not that there's essential – these essential characteristics. So that's one limitation. The other that Justin mentioned is goal-directed and teleological. People have the mind – we've talked about this on the show a lot, the psychological tendency to think that things are moving towards a goal. Mm -hmm. And people do that with – again, even people that say that they believe in evolution, they use use languages like it's – these traits are for something. That's why they are here is because – this or – yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so – and that's not – what evolution is. It's not teleological. If the, the natural selection mechanism is non-teleological. It just picks and... and there's no end point there's in no mind end point, there's, there's no, no mind. direction. Yeah. Well, related to the teleological point is our, our insistence in seeing agency behind things that appear to have design. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and all these things you're, you're pointing out, like we, we mentioned in our uh, Are We Born to Believe episode... All these things are are things we are actually born to believe, <laughs> I, I guess, in a sense. We do – we acquire these habits of mind very early on and they can only be reversed through education and training. Yeah, so not only are our mind – we've talked about people – the debate about are people's minds set up to be religious because they do these dualism – essentialism, teleological. This would, for the same reason, say that they might be born in some ways to not easily believe in evolution. One of the other articles that I came across when I was 
looking at resistance to evolution and creationism was a little bit shocking to me. This is one by uh, the main lead author, Sarah Brem. It's uh, the what she found was is that the title of the article is "Perceived Consequences of Evolution." College students mm-hmm. perceive mm-hmm. negative personal and social impact in evolutionary theory. Oh, yeah. She looked at like obviously college students and then asked them about their belief, creationism, evolution, different shades thereof. And then she asked them the perceived consequences of like if it were true that we evolved, what would it mean for things like you know spirituality? And, and uh, what was shocking to me was that she found that both evolutionists, uh, creationists and evolution believers both had indistinguishably the perception of negative consequences – if evolution were true, undesirable aspects, it would increase people's selfishness if we evolved or like racist implications, uh, less purpose and determination, self-determination that even evolutionists endorsed that that was that that would be the case with mm-hmm. if with evolution, which I find a little bit. I mean, that's I guess it's somewhat disturbing uh, that um, somebody I could understand a creationist would use that, use that as an argument against evolution. They would say, well, yeah. if it were true, I don't want to believe it because that would mean that my life is purpose purposeless, you know, or that I didn't have uh, my spirituality would be crushed. But evolutionists, unfortunately, seems, that's not actually a very good argument. Like, I don't like the uh, no. I the mean, outcome, we, we always therefore. point out that yes, even if it were true that life was bleak, that doesn't mean that it's not true. I don't want to live in a world where I don't have a winning lottery ticket. <laughs> but, but I, would expect, I, I guess I would expect uh, that, that evolutionists would say, but look, uh, the implications aren't that negative. I'm an evolutionist. My life has purpose or that, you know, I there's but they seem to endorse that. that, that now, granted that some of these people might not have the full implications of evolution because of what we talked about before of many people that are evolutionists don't completely understand it. But they seem to it doesn't seem to be something that's a happy joy worldview for many people that they would recognize that yes it's true and in many ways it might rob my life of a sense of ultimate purpose perhaps mm-hmm. maybe not my personal life but that per- teleological kind of working towards a goal grander purpose yeah kind it's of just thing. one yeah. damn thing after the other i don't know i'd get behind that i i think evolution is not one of those things that i always get dewy-eyed and sentimental about i mean occasionally you can say wow i'm connected to every other life form on earth here you know there's this unbroken chain taking me all the way back to the to the yeah, dawn of life right. that's kind of cool but uh, there's also all that death and destruction and yeah. everything else. And, and Darwin himself and wrote about that. that, that I think it is yeah. kind of bleak. Uh, maybe they're just having an honest reaction. I, yeah. Why do our worldviews always have to make us happy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes the truth is uncomfortable. But to that point, though, I mean, there are some really positive things. I mean, for all the negative that comes out of learning about our history and about evolution and how sad some of the past has been, it's evolution that creates things like the idea of coevolution. It's that bird or sorry, that hummingbird you see um, drinking out of the beautiful flower. I mean, they're both beautiful for evolutionary purposes. I mean the the, mm-hmm. the tiger stripes are uh, something we can reflect on poetically, but you know it's it's definitely an evolutionary our concept um, advantage. Is, is As I'm being disemboweled, that he's feasting on my intestines, I'll be like, at least <laughs> yes. I can contribute in some way. Like, I'm weeding out my gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> even moms, mom, but moms taking care of their young or. 
populations working together. Yeah. Um, human beings are successful because of language. One of the successful features of us is our language. It allows us to communicate with each other. Language isn't something that evolves because of selfishness or, you know, this this lonely spot on earth that we inhabit, that we're all alone in the universe. No, no. I mean, we're we're in this together. I guess it is worth saying, though, that one of the satisfying things about evolution is understanding just how far we've gotten beyond our, our roots in that sense mm-hmm. and how how we're able to kind of work even against some of the expectations we'd see um, because of consciousness, which is just an exciting mm-hmm. field of study in it, itself. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a lot of gray area, which you'd expect from, um, you know, naturalists as mm-hmm. opposed to real authoritarian religious people who say, look, it's it's all negative, this is bad, whereas Jesus, all good, which one am I going to go for? I'm going to go for the comforting fantasy. Well, and I, plus isn't, I'd it, rather... isn't it nicer to have a, you know, a realistic view of reality, with, bittersweet as it is, based on real discoveries that we've made rather than just tailor-making a worldview to suit our our, our feelings as to how the world should be. Well, plus I'll take randomness over somebody's pushing cars over cliffs or throwing lightning bolts mm-hmm. any day yeah. <laughs> because then all the shit that happens in the world has some sort yeah. of cause whereas I just yep. like to think this is just some random shit that's so, happening today rather than God happen. zapping me or killing my cats or whatever like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just malicious. Something happened, Luke? God, God made my cat swallow a rubber band. Oh, that's the worst. No! Why, Lord? Why? Oh, well, good to know. Well, so we've talked about just the debate overall in a kind of meta way. (laughs) Um, Maybe we should get into the actual (laughs) substance of the debate. What were some of the claims that were being made and uh, and talk about that? Was there substance? Ham did start. One of his key arguments was Mm. not about the – directly about the evidence for or against evolution but about different types of science. He – continually made this claim that there's a difference between observational science, that mm-hmm. which we can perform in a laboratory or di- directly observe ourselves, and historical science, that which tends to look into the past to figure out how things happen. It happened a long time ago. How do we know you that, were, were you yeah, there? that the tree there. wasn't made without yes, the rings which is, in it already? Yes, which as is, expressed course, by that phrase, were you there? Right, which is, of course, laden with uh, philosophical methodological assumptions. Yeah. Again, for those who didn't watch the debate, I'm guessing everybody who's listening did. Ham's point in, in bringing that up was to say that observational science, that is the objective side of science. Mm-hmm. Historical science, going into the past, that's where we bring in our worldviews and our and presuppositions faith. and interpret things. And belief. He basically tried to say we all have the same observational evidence. Mm-hmm. Evolutionists and creationists could agree on observational science. We just differ in our some of us understand what it means interpretation. and some of us make crap up. So we differ in our interpretations. Yeah. What do you think, guys? Is there a real difference at all between this observational ver- versus historical science? Is there is there any real difference? It is the case that science, when it does these extrapolations back into the past, it does work on some philosophical, methodological assumptions. It's just the case that... That kind of project works really well, uh, and it is an incredibly successful project. Um, and, and when so, there's evidence that counts against it, then we adapt the theory. Right, right. right. I mean, and so he's making the point that, yeah, look, these observations are going to be theory-laden. But he doesn't seem to think that there's any good reason to not make the assumption that certain processes are going to continue to... I mean, that just seems absurd. Like, 
if he really thinks that, then how could he possibly be comfortable with us sending people to jail because of the methodological assumptions we use in mm -hmm. crime scene investigations or, you know, with anything else? Like, every single investigation must assume some very basic things, and he seems to not want to do that, but I guarantee he does it in his everyday life. Yeah, of course. Pluto was discovered in 1930. The dog? The yeah. recently demoted, demoted yeah. right, planets, the planetoid, mm -hmm. I think is, I, I forget. Or Plutoid, mm -hmm. I think is um, yeah. one term we'll take Plutoid. Which is so, cool. So Plutoid was discovered in 1930, and what we were able to do is we were able to measure its orbit around the sun. So it's uh, it, the orbit of Pluto is about 247 years. So this means... We've never actually seen Pluto make a complete revolution around mm. the sun. So can we, with any degree of certainty, say Pluto actually orbits the sun or is it just making a temporary no. stay? No, nope. That's a good point. And, mm -hmm. and you, you ask someone, well, does Pluto orbit the sun? And then you, it's a good – I guess it's a good invitation to a debate or, or a discussion on how we can make these um, predictions. Yeah, Pluto will. Here's why. We know the angular momentum of Pluto. We know the effect of gravity on Pluto. We know how it – fits within the specific curvature of space-time around uh, around the sun to fit, you know, an orbital ellipse. Or maybe every hundred <laughs> years it ju just goes backwards. Yeah, backwards. <laughs> and it's just covering this but, one But section. it invites, you know, there you go. There's the uh, logical leap that you have to take when you make the argument that, yes, science or, or the things that we see in nature can be vastly different in the past. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, that's akin to saying maybe Pluto jumps, you know, within the orbit of the Earth – uh, revolves mm -hmm. around the Earth and goes, we can't honestly say that's not the case. But it takes much, much more evidence to make that claim than it does to make one that's already been established by what we've what we've observed. That's a great point. I, I, I like it for two reasons. It's, it's just like another argument that we hear from creationists. Oh, well, evolution's just a theory. Hmm. And we throw back, well, if you want to take that seriously <laughs> – much of what we say in physics is just a theory. Gravity is just it's a not theory even a in this sense. It's, it's below theory. And you show them how much they would have to reject if they were to fairly apply their arguments across the board. And it's the same way with this. Ken Ham would have to main, maintain that the belief that Pluto orbits the sun is a historical science. It's not observational science. So it's below the threshold of science there. Mm -hmm. As he would say it, beliefs have to enter in when we interpret this data. But as you pointed out, Justin, yeah, we need to make some assumptions, but those are very sensible assumptions. Yeah. And that's more the, my problem with Ham's argument with this observational historical science. I do think there's a little bit of legitimacy to the idea that there's a, there, there might be a difference between what we can strictly observe and what we have to infer about the past. Mm -hmm in that our inferences about the past require us to make more assumptions, they can be very sensible assumptions that are consistent with all the rest of the data. The assumptions that Ham's introducing are completely ad hoc. They are there not to make sense of the data, but to allow him to accommodate his biblical views with mm -hmm. the data. Uh, these assumptions are not adopted in the same way scientists usually adopt assumptions. Yeah, the way the way that. Ham is telling us to do it. The Bible says there are kinds of animals. Well, let's get a team of scientists together to figure out what those kinds were and right. thus prove. How that. can you define kinds to where the Bible is saying something relevant about yeah. biology? But see, they do that kinds thing the same way. In the same way with the astronomy thing, they would acknowledge that on some level. This is why I don't understand about what's the distinction between observational and historical. At some point, a yeah. bunch of observations 
creates historical. History. So if yeah. I look in the sky and see a spreading cloud, I didn't see the supernova, but there's things getting bigger mm-hmm. with a neutron star in the middle or whatever. Right. And then I see something else like a flash in a galaxy that happened in a little version of that starting. I put those two events together and say what I'm looking at now is looks like this thing getting bigger later or with evolution. Right. If there's kinds of animals and they seem to have differences between them, what is the difference between a species and a kind? Yeah. They're just different. There's, there's no cutoff. I mean, That's the whole point. Newton and Galileo made observations in their time, which are now historical science, right? We have that that we it's, can it's, look it's back extrapolation. to. extrapolation. You put yeah. together various things, and then the theory predicts how they extrapolate and they extend that backwards in time. I and don't we have can to see, see if it holds. And <laughs> Compared to God created the, what, the light in transit to make it look like it's uh-huh. old? Think how many assumptions that, that theory makes. Well, if, well, we were talking about this before the show, though, too is actually with Ken Ham's view, we can suggest that the world was created right this second mm-hmm. with all of our history planted in or what I like even more, that the world will be created 10 minutes from now with this <laughs> as implanted memory, which we haven't actually experienced but think we have. Uh, I, don't, the I don't think he sees the implications of that. No. He, of he doesn't see how devastating this is to his own position. If you're, if you're really going to say that anything we don't directly observe right now, the, the broader context here is that Ken Ham's willing to uh, believe that our laws don't act in uniform ways, that perhaps yeah. the speed right. of light was different in the past or perhaps God created uh, – because right, Bill Nye brought up we can look at ice cores that go back 600,000 years. I mean that's a observation you can make now that says something about history that would show the young earth position is, is wrong empirically. And Ham wants to dismiss that as historical science too because we don't know that those ice layers formed at the same rate that they do today. So Dave's point is right on here. Uh, if, if, you, if you're going to be that loose with the uniformity of nature – it could apply to events that happened just yesterday. Yeah. If God created the world with the appearance of age, with rock layers and strata and tree rings and ice layers and everything else, well, then he could have very well done that yesterday. Yeah. It didn't have to be 10,000 years ago. Even. Dinosaur bones in the ground, all of and, that uh, stuff. So Ham's using one of these uh, uh, arguments that would terminate in a very deep skepticism if that would – destroy his own claims, undermine his own claims if he applied it consistently. It's actually interesting you point that out because he does contradict himself a number of times in that debate. Um, One of the things that he does, one of the arguments he makes when he's talking about kinds is, well, look at this paper that shows the uh, heritage of of dogs as coming from one source of wolves. And and you see it. And in fact, it's actually a really well-documented or well-published article and um, it seems to be the case that dogs didn't have a, m- a multivariate genesis. They didn't um, evolve over, you know, it's kind of the same out of Africa hypothesis for humans. So there, there appears to have been one area, one region of the world, one population of wolves that turned into dogs. But what he fails to point out <laughs> is the y-axis on his graphic showing this this branch on the evolution or the creationist garden of life, as he calls it, <laughs> the y-axis goes up to four hundred thousand years ago, and so he uses what he would call historical science to <laughs> to justify his argument. I love yeah. that he didn't even look at his own chart. No, he didn't. For the, look at his I mean, fair. Yeah. He moved through it pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. No one got to look Just at that chart. All that. Uh, yeah. Another really glaring contradiction. 
Ham, Ham tries to make one of these presuppositionalist arguments that we've talked about mm-hmm. on the show and totally botches it. Uh, but he tries to argue that, hey, look, even secular science is actually has to borrow from a Christian worldview to make its claims. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, what? He says, uh, assumes the laws of logic, that there are laws of nature, and assumes the uniformity of nature. So apparently you need to presuppose Christianity to believe in uniformity of nature, but you also need to deny the uniformity of nature in order to validate the Bible's claims. It was – again, with these apologists, I don't think they're trying to think this through systematically. They're just grabbing at any refutation they can get their hands on and they end up he, tangling themselves yeah, they, in they contradictions. The points that they previously made. Right. And they just reach for whatever they can get out of He's as poor a scientist as he is an apologist. <laughs> I mean, he's not even a good apologist. Well, I think when students well, – this is, I see this in students all the time is that they criticize aspects like uh, – and they think that's critical thinking. It's just to criticize whatever – like, you know, carbon dating, that can be screwed up. There was something in the debate about like a debating uh, – a dating yeah, method, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, or then they'll switch to some other thing. Well, how do I know that that's true and how – that's – you, what we have to do a better job, I think, in science education is not is that critical thinking is not being critical of whatever you stumble across in a, just a blanket way. It's you know I try always try to point out if if that's wrong, you know, then there's so many other sciences that have to be there's so many other methods that would have to be wrong in the same direction. Yeah. How likely do you think that is that carbon dating is wrong, the cesium method is wrong, this is wrong, the tree rings are wrong? You know that mm-hmm. they 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 don't seem to get that those things are are back up each other mm-hmm. and that, that simply putting out one possible maybe flaw in one thing doesn't mean that you've won the argument. Now, I yeah. knew that, that tree rings themselves could get us back to 12,000 uh, years, but I had no idea that we had, uh, I think, didn't he show a, a 9,000-year-old tree? Yeah, it's Somewhere something like that. Northern yeah, the, Europe? Yeah, it, Northern Europe. Was it, is it still living? And I one of them is I know the oldest tree we found. Uh, we found out it was the oldest tree after but cutting it. Accidentally cutting it down. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it was right. intentionally it was, cut down. They just I, didn't realize. I, it was I don't long. have the yeah. exact age of that tree. Just, that was just like incredible. last year, wasn't it? That was yeah, misunderstood was directions. Yeah. He got his yeah, little tree core stuck in there and was like, <laughs> "Oh man, I have to stop because I got this." And the assistance workers were like, "Okay," and they cut down the tree. It was like, "Here's your." Here's your cheap device back. <laughs> Just killed the world's oldest tree <laughs> for your easily replaceable tool. And I did make a really good debate that I don't think – or I'm sorry, point in the debate where I don't think people quite understood. If you put a tree underwater, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, a slide for, for a long enough period of time. It will die. I mean it's not seaweed. It will die. Also, Ken Ham was making a very weird distinction between science as being – it counts or qualifies as science if it's useful, if it's – like if it has some sort yeah. of engineering application to it. And it reminded me of this – I think it's a, a legend, but it's still the the point stands where I think it's Faraday and his laws are coming up before the – the Royal College and then the Queen gets to see all of his interesting little experiments and she goes, well, how is this going to be useful? And he goes, something I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm not sure how it's going to be useful, but I know you'll be able to tax it in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just a good, you know. I thought he said, madam, of what use is your child? (laughs) Isn't that the famous rejoinder? Children, I mean, children can be put to work. (laughs) That's what a Victorian age Englishman should have responded to that. Full work. Get to work, boy. Although I keep trying. It's not working with my kids. But I can see that point fitting into the debate when yeah, Ham yeah, lays sure. down this uh Ham lays down this ridiculous challenge like explain to me one invention 
that would not be possible if it were not for molecules to man evolution. That How about rotating drugs to true. prevent resistance? Yeah, I was just going well, yeah, you know, flu shot predicting vaccines and the H and N. Yeah, I mean, well, but uh, Ken Ham clearly has a hang up on engineers because every time he talked about a scientist who's also a young Earth creationist. They were engineers. It was like this guy built the MRI. Well, yeah. okay, but what does that have to yeah, do with not, the yeah. MRI or built us. this part of a space shuttle? And those yeah. were people it, have noticed before that engineers tend to be, as yeah. far as scientific thinking, to be very compartmentalized and often religious and conservative. It, it's like saying, look at all of these people with doctorates in English that are, you know, young Earth creationists. Yeah, which and, I mean. Which is what made that a illegitimate appeal to authority. Yeah. You can quote all the scientists that are creationists that you want, but if they're not in the relevant field, they don't they're not repeating the consensus view of that field, then their testimony yeah. as an authority is worthless in it, any even kind if of argument. They're very good. You know, the guy who created the MRI, that's fantastic. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean, mean he, he knows. understands evolution. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it yeah. kind of also kind of betrays the point, right? So if he's starting with the Bible and that's how he's interpreting things. And that you can go to school and educate yourself on these things but still hold those views because you recognize the difference, right, that he invents between historical and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, observational. and observational science. So there's nothing inconsistent with an MRI guy going to school, mm-hmm. being a scientist, but still holding these views because mm-hmm. he makes the, that distinction. This just kind of glosses over the point that he just made. And I can tell you from personal experience, physicians themselves, that guy was an MD, um, Physicians, they have variable uh, science educations in terms of, especially regarding specific scientific theories like evolutionary biology. I had the advantage of receiving an education in that, but I know some of my, I'm in medical school now, some of my peers, um, they had a, more of a chemistry background and sort mm-hmm. of an, just an introduction to evolution and they may not have taken away the relevant mm-hmm. arguments, um, but you all give the right answers um, as far as why it's a um, it's a bad argument because it's an argument from authority. But if you really do want to win a cheap rhetorical point, you could always point out that there are more biologists named Steve that accept <laughs> yeah. evolution. And this is called Project Steve. I invite everyone to look it up. Yeah, uh, there's something Steve. like 1,300 Steves now that. is the count. Yeah. Uh, Accept the theory, and I say accept rather than believe. Because yes. Ham and the Discovery Institute, they keep on, you know, releasing these uh, these lists of names of scientists who agree with them. And mm-hmm. yeah, the Steves, you can get more names that are just biologists and just Steve. It's a cheap point, but sometimes that's well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a, a, a terrible rhetorical argument like that deserves a equally terrible <laughs> response. Well, sure. To bring up another one of Ham's arguments, he, he made the claim that we can make certain predictions and then validate them with oh, yeah. our observational science. And he said he said that the biblical account, uh, you know, equally makes predictions. But it was really funny the kind of predictions he was bringing up. <laughs> it, it, it was things like the Bible uh, predicts intelligence produced life. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see, which is a total begging the question mm-hmm. argument because Absolutely. he never jumps into the evidence for this intelligence that created life. Well, yeah, God said, um, let there be life, make man in our own image, and that's why people right. – I mean, I think technically unless you actually witness the designer fashioning the person out of clay and breathing spirit into them, I'm not sure you could take that. It's historical as, science, Jeremy. Yeah, he says things like evidence of a global flood. Again, there isn't. But these were some fun ones. 
Well, the Bible predicts that there would be one race of humans, and that's what we see, one yeah. race of humans, whereas, you know, Darwinian evolution would predict many. Of course, he doesn't seem to think any of these hominid fossils. I mean, if you want to see evidence of different races of humans, just go through the. I mean, <laughs> are we forgetting about the Nephilim that came yeah. down? Are these not different races of people when they had sex well, with humans? Oh, I didn't think of taking that the biblical <laughs> yeah. direction. Either. I think what's particularly galling about that is that it, it tries to flip what 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 had been done for for centuries, where the Bible was used specifically to argue that there wasn't. One race that there were different right. races, and we could that justifies slavery and all that. Mm-hmm. What Darwin had used evolution in part. Um, I read this book called Darwin's Sacred Cause, where yeah. it argues that Dar- Darwin was using some of evolutionary theory to argue for the uniformity of the races that we all come from one stock to say that's why slavery is wrong. Yeah. And it was Thank the Christians who no were, one ever screwed up that idea. So now they try. It's almost like the Republican Party trying to jump on the civil rights bandwagon. Yeah, really? Yeah. Yes, Lincoln, they, they tried, Lincoln, Lincoln was a Republican. If he's gonna, if he's gonna default Darwinism because some textbook picked up. Darwin's thesis and used it to justify racism, which he which he did in this yes. in this. If he's going to do that, well, then what about the people? Yeah, who said because Africans are the descendant of the Ham, Mark of Ham, or, right? The whole well, that's Middle just Ages perverting. That were that's just perverting the Bible. Well, that's just perverting Darwin's theory. Yeah. I mean, you, and you also, can't have it both ways. Also, the idea where you have the you know the first abolitionists being Quakers. Yeah, sure, they were Christians, but they were the they were kicked out of their churches because <laughs> yes, exactly, because, yeah. because they had very little biblical support mm-hmm. for their uh, abolitionist views. But more predictions here: the Tower of Babel predicts we'll find different languages. It also predicts we'd find a goddamn tower. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that our space shuttles shouldn't be able to get past the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. It also, this was my absolute favorite one that you could tell even Ham didn't want to say this, but he felt like his, his, uh, supporters would be disappointed if he didn't. He said, uh, uh, if the Bible account is right, we should expect to see billions of dead things. <laughs> and he said, and that's what we see, billions of dead things. God does but love killing stuff. That's it's right there. It's cute. You know, if we step outside this for a little bit and look at it from a more of a historian's perspective, it's cute to me that he's using ideological myths as predictions, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. These myths are there to explain phenomena we already see. But he calls it a prediction. But he he's treating that. these as, you know, kind of, well, this is what we should see. You know, the predictions in science are that they're important because they lead to fruitful research. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be counterintuitive too. They're predictions that you couldn't see just from the background theory of your hypothesis. Right. Or they're if your hypothesis, mechanism, yeah. Right. If that doesn't happen, then they're just basically circular reasoning at that point. It can be novel. It can't be simply a product of your you – well, Most products. of the listeners so, are probably familiar with that whole like you know the nectar cup being 11 inches long and then they predict somewhere there must be a moth with an 11-inch long tongue to, – or maybe it's the reverse. And then they find it in Madagascar or someplace yeah. like that. Like here's yeah. the thing that fits in the nectar cup. And, right. and that's what Nye did so, so well is he then showed the predictive ability of evolution and it was like really specific. Right. We should find of, this uh, fossil in this strata mm-hmm. in this region. Yeah, with Neil Shubin and his crew yeah. in Tiktaalik, yeah. it was a great example. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of really cool examples about that. Like the we were talking before the show about the um, mitochondrial DNA in, in in our mitochondria, which, if you recall from like high school biology, these are the little organelles within our cells 
that appear to be remnants of past bacteria absorbed by our ancestral origin, rather. And they have their own, since they used to be bacteria, they have their own set of DNA, which we call mitochondrial DNA, which isn't subject to the same replication error that our normal DNA is uh, subject to. And so it has a kind of a rather reliable rate over, you know, thousands of years, but a rather reliable rate of mutation. So if we compare, say, the mitochondrial DNA of chimpanzees and the mitochondrial DNA of humans... Um, the difference between that, you know, with the rate, you so you know, pretty easy math problem to come to something along the lines of, you know, we would expect a common ancestor based on mitochondrial DNA alone. Uh, the prediction by mitochondrial DNA to be about two million or so years ago. If I this is off the top of my head, mm. and then that's exactly how we, you know, where we date the Australopithecines, you know, yeah. And so those well, comparing that, mitochondrial DNA with Y chromosome yeah. mutation, that kind of specific prediction. It's totally that you could never just half-ass right, right. is is what these theories are capable of. And, and I love Ham holding up his uh, <laughs> billions of dead things as a, the predictive power. It like a heavy metal concert yeah, with yeah. the arrow <laughs> and the dead bodies. The multiple bodies. here, right? I yeah. mean when you have independent lines right. pointing mm-hmm. to the same conclusion. But and that's, that's the thing. If any of those lines of evidence – truly contradicted the other, we'd, we'd get excited. I don't know. Yep. Biologists would start getting excited because we'd say, okay, there's something we're missing here. You know, I mean, the idea of <laughs> genetic drift in, in addition to natural selection was an exciting thing. The, the understanding of the modern synthesis of biology by incorporating, okay, now we understand where all this variability comes from through genetic uh, mutation. Like we, we now we understand how, how differences can arise. That's exciting, and, and, and those sometimes upend our previous predictions. But let's say if that date had been 10 million years ago, then we'd have a problem. Or if we you know, saw the or chicken 2, and years the rabbit in the Precambrian, yeah. that would be a problem, and, yeah. and a problem in the sense that, well, we're doing this wrong. The argument that it frames creationism in any form of creationism is the argument from ignorance. And you guys mm-hmm. have talked about this multiple times. And this came up in the Q&A. Can you explain what happened before the Big Bang? Well, no. The answer to that question is no. And that's great because that means someone's going to win a Nobel Prize in the future for yeah. figuring that out maybe. Or can you explain consciousness? And this is super exciting. I mean maybe maybe not, but someday hopefully that would be exciting to understand consciousness. And so what happens is someone goes, well, I, I'll just – I'll put my beliefs in that gap, you know, in that that absence of explanation well, the problem with that is, you know, okay, can you can you explain consciousness? No. Well, then that that's that's because it's a soul, and the soul, t- you know, the existence of the soul reveals that there's a god. You can explain, any, you, you can put anything in that gap. So, what happened before the Big Bang? Well, uh, a yeti, you know, snapped his fingers in the, the 13th. cosmic yeti. You can come up with anything you want and put it in there, and there's no way of differentiating between the thousands and well, infinite possibilities. It's also totally irrational to ask what happened before the Big Bang. Yeah, right. The beginning of time. <laughs> that's actually too. that's yes. a good point because yeah. time Which I was hoping and space Bill Nye would bring up. Are, yes. I just I just answer by saying it's look it's just turtles all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. Yeah. But I mean that's the arg- you know that argument of ignorance is something that once you just once you point that out I think I think light bulbs in a maybe one out of you know four or five people you talk to light bulbs start turning on and they go wait a second you've got a point you know. And that's – I mean that's kind of the best we can hope to get from a debate like this is to get people thinking. Turn I, some light bulbs Yeah. On. I don't think anyone walked away from watching this debate and went, God isn't real. Evolution, you know, no. and, and changed their mind completely. But a couple of years from now, 
they're thinking about this stuff. They still see Bill Nye again and they go, oh, yeah, he made that point about the thing. And suddenly we do start to get – it's that gradual change through a population as opposed to one person spontaneously yeah. changing. I saw a small victory on Facebook. Yeah, one of my friends put up the Buzzfeed 22 questions from creationists. Oh, yeah. If you haven't seen this, oh, we're no. going to have a Is link that the on one where our they're website. holding up the little signs. The signs yep, yeah, creationists holding up little placards <sighs> with sometimes making these really smug faces, right, mm-hmm. when they're using well-debunked arguments. The second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, well, that was oh, the yeah. one. That was the one. <laughs> can, I, can I say something about because the second the law of thermodynamics? This is actually the most effective counter-argument, and it's completely a rhetorical point, that I've found whenever someone brings up the second law of thermodynamics, you just you ask them if they can name any other law of thermodynamics. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Can you name the first law? <laughs> so you're there's, an expert there's four. on this, huh? There's zero, one, two, and three. Can you name any of them other than two? And then that – I mean everyone goes, oh, wait a yeah. second. And, and actually can you even – Understand. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought Bill Nye did a great job with because mm. he, he had two minutes to explain and, he, he does. and how, it, yeah. how it works yeah. and he did. Well, he did a really that's nice what job. I saw on Facebook essentially was a young Christian uh, woman that's one of my Facebook friends who always thought that second law of thermodynamics was the smackdown argument. Mm-hmm. And when she saw articles criticizing this uh, linked to the BuzzFeed thing, yeah, I saw her write in her Facebook, well, I'm not using that one anymore. And, uh, hey, you know, start. Again, Absolutely. it's not a huge change of worldview, but it's it's those tiny little things that become – it's not only it's, – it's a lesson to be learned too. Mm-hmm. I mean part of my deconversion was learning the lesson. I can't always trust these apologists. I need to look deeper. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are learning that. I always congratulate people though when they make those sorts of arguments yeah. because even in their, even though they're wrong, their conclusions are wrong. I say, well, at least we're talking about evidence. You know, at least you're you're saying, hey, yeah. I want to talk about the the you're evidence. You're trying to make it about it. science. You know, you're trying yeah. to. This doesn't appear to be scientifically reasonable. And then if so, what you can say then? Well, then if I could show that it is reasonable scientifically, you, yeah. surely you would change your opinion, right? And then you, have a respect you put them the on the data. spot yeah, yeah. and you know, hold yeah. people accountable to, to intellectual honesty. Notice that was not an argument Ken Ham used. He had no, no appeal to, right. uh, to anything like that. But. Well, one of the things I was talking to Jeremy about is I've had this debate a, a number of times in the college setting and just the social settings. And a lot of – it's a fun topic to talk about. But if I were to ever write a book, how to, <laughs> how to debate evolution, I think step one would be establishing whether or not the person is capable of recognizing his or her own biases and say, <laughs> essentially ask the person, are you willing to change your mind? I mean, if, if it turns out that the evidence is against you or the evidence is weighed against you, are you willing to admit whether or not you're wrong? And then you can volunteer. I'm coming to the table with the same bid. Wasn't one of the Q, Q&As towards that was, what? I was going to say. The that questions that, of what to would me, it take to, to me, that was the ending of the argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, if they had started the debate off of the with, with that question, mm-hmm. I think that would have sent an important what, message to the What was it that Ham said? Audience. The question that was directly mm-hmm. asked was, would anything, to Ken Ham and Bill Nye both, would mm-hmm. anything change your mind or what would you need right. to see, right, yes. to change your mind on this issue? And, right. And so Ken Ham says, well, he starts out with, well, I'm a Christian, then he goes on to describe what that means. I believe in Jesus is the savior of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes, so no, it's he's had a personal revelation mm-hmm. in God and how it's a very personal experience for him. And that's great. That's, you know, fine for him. But then he ends with no. And then my favorite part of the debate is he goes, Bill Nye 
would anything change your mind? And I, uh-huh. you can tell that he was expecting Bill to say no. And then Bill Nye looks over and says, yeah, if you give me better evidence, I would change my mind in a heartbeat. Which is an exciting thing. A lot of people look at the changes in science yeah. and the changes in scientific theories like flog us on to now thermodynamics, understanding how you know a lot of these old theories, I mean, from the four humors to modern medicine. And you say, well, see, science is inconsistent. We can't trust it. It's unreliable. Well, no, it's the very well, change famous, within science. There's that, that famous response of – I forget who the guy was, some old fart that was asked about what would falsify evolution and he said a pre-Cambrian rabbit. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. The, if, you, yep. if you find something like – yeah, Haldane. If, if you'd find something like that, then that would cause a revision. But, but Ken Ham sets it up in the debate as people who are bringing – up these new ideas are chastised by the scientific Not community. They are thrown out. Yeah. Which is <laughs> go to a scientific conference. If mm. you are somebody yeah. who has a new evidence for a new theory, yeah. you are. Or that shoots you, down everything in established people, science. People are motivated to have knife fights in the gutter over the most minute things. If you had evidence, <laughs> if you had yeah. some evidence that would overset a major theory, do you seriously think that person would be would be suppressed in any way? I mean, they well, would I like. Do know, I do know that there's been some uh, people who are you know the more the not so crazy. It's not young earth creationism, but yeah, right. the more accepting most of evolutionary right. theory, but but thinking that you know the I, the idea that there's an intelligent mind that that is the best explanation for some mm-hmm. particular uh, molecular machines. Right. Um, I know that there's been some people chastised for trying to, for trying to get some things published in that, but if you look into those cases, it's usually the case that these people are kind of trying to go around the typical procedures and trying to get their uh, their publications in a kind of back door yeah. into major journals. You can, and, you and can get published on Ken Ham's website. He kept talking about all these published <laughs> articles on our website. Do I don't know. Everybody's peer review is hard to get things published with yeah. a peer review system. So Even if it's good. Everybody is criticized. To me, that, that question, though, of what would it take to change your mind – that was the whole debate. Yeah. If they had started with that moment, it would have been so, – and by the way, I was playing devil's advocate earlier. Mm-hmm. I, I I have some issues with debates like this, but I do think having it out there is, is very valuable. I just think that was the key moment to me. Oh, yeah. Would you ever change your mind? No. Would you ever change your mind? Yeah, give me the evidence. I think it was good that, that was it happened right at the end. Too. Yeah. That, it's, it's, that was – I mean that was the kind of thing that people are going to remember most yes. I think because it was such a significant point. Yeah. And it, that's when people, you know, they walked away from the debate with that in but, mind. But to me, that that is the basic question before you decide to have a debate is is there any is there any room between these two points? It's I'm not getting into a debate against someone who argues that uh, Snow White is a documentary, you know. Mm-hmm. But that being said, we don't have a large percentage of people in this country who believe that Snow White is a documentary and will legislate based on that idea and try to teach our kids that idea. So it is it is more important than just, you know, this is nonsense, we can dismiss it, but that doesn't yeah. that doesn't ultimately get us where we need to be. It was also a great demonstration of Ham's hypocrisy mm-hmm. because his entire case is that these secularists and these atheists are taking over with their naturalist science. They won't hear us. They won't they are so closed-minded they won't even consider mm-hmm. because of the dogma and the indoctrination. And then we see he's the one that's flat out saying, I refuse to change my mind no matter what, showing the sophistry in his whole approach Mm -hmm. the entire time. 
the two year old with the cookie. No, you you stole the cookie. Mm. You know, it's projection. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, although I appreciate his honesty in that because Ken Ham could easily have said, you know, well, if blah 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 blah, then I then yeah. I I change my mind. He won't. If you were he to will give me never change his mind. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so you know, props to him for that, despite uh-huh. the obvious hypocrisy inherent in in the rest of the discussion. Uh, it was uh, it was a slog getting through that thing at times, but I think um, I'm I'm glad it's out there, and I'm glad people are talking about it, especially because the uh, evolutionary guy didn't totally botch it, like mm-hmm. yeah. as is often the case. So we have another follow up to a previous episode. Uh, several episodes we uh, we talked about Noah's Ark. And uh, Ken Ham, of course, came up in that mm-hmm. context because of Answers in Genesis's uh, paper declaring that the Ark could have been built. They've built one percent of the <laughs> yeah, Ark. Yeah. They've rebuilt it. That was the figure yeah. he gave in the debate. So that's recent. Well, uh, Noah's Ark is back in the news. It's like every two years or something. The article from – yeah, I know. Uh, long shelf life, that story. NBCnews.com has this article, Babylonian Tale of Round Ark Draws Ire from Some Christian Circles. Irving Finkel, he's a researcher of these ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets, these little clay tablets with logograms in it, uh, some of the earliest forms of writing that we actually have. He has discovered and deciphered a 4,000-year-old clay tablet that really actually cool is now the earliest mention of the, of the Mesopotamian flood myth mm-hmm. that we have. So if, you, if you imagine a mini-wheat. Yes, that's basically what this looks like. Cell phone. For sure. When you take it back to the Sumerian library, though, if you drop it down a chute, you got to be real careful. <laughs> Every book I return, it smashes into pieces. we got to invent something. It's flexible. Does this describe the Epic of Gilgamesh or is this a pre-Epic of Gilgamesh? Uh, this is pre-Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, wow. This is uh, this is even before Atraharsis, uh, which is the earlier account. That yeah, you'll find. Because we should point out pre-biblical uh, Mesopotamian flood narratives are not new. Gilgamesh and yeah. very well-known one and now we've got one that's even older yeah. than those. I guess what's remarkable about this is that it's a full millennium before the story that's that was recorded old. in the Bible was edited. I mean we don't know exactly when the story begins but we know that it's it's put to paper and in its well, edited play. form. <laughs> the modern mm. biblical version oh, of sure. this story yeah. was edited and put to paper or parchment sometime around the Babylonian captivity. So uh, this is a full millennium before that. It's the earliest version of the story we have. And I guess what's interesting about it is it has versions of the earlier uh, – of the other stories in it. But in this one, the ark is round. They build a frame. And they coil rope around mm-hmm. it, rope uh, tied from um, I think reed fiber. They coil this rope around it, which is which is funny because this actually sounds like a design that might work. Well, I, I believe uh, not to have all the world's animals no, in it, no, but no, no. Uh, but the way they are describing it, they go into incredible detail about how they're coiling the rope around this this wooden structure. They said it was amazing. There were forty lines devoted to the waterproofing. Of the boat really? using bit- bitumen, like really, really specific instructions Isn't about how, how to waterproof that, like a, this thing. That contiki raft is they they had pitch or something like that, like tar yeah. to seal the reeds or whatever, and then they 
floated across mm-hmm. the ocean. And that's, uh, yeah, essentially what this is, a big uh, reed basket, like a type of boat you would have found on the rivers at that time. Like the kind of basket that Moses would have floated down. <laughs> yeah. Something about rivers and baskets and people getting rescued, uh, baskets with pitch, that's a popular thing in Mesopotamia. Yeah. Uh, the other feature that's worth noting is that a full millennium before the Bible and it specifically contains the phrase two by two. The animals were walked onto the ark two by two. Uh, so yeah, you could see why this might cause problems for fundamentalists, um, such a, you know, something so closely echoing the Bible's narrative, but a full millennium before it was written. Because Gilgamesh doesn't have those details. There's no talk of animals. I believe it's the seeds of all things living are what they bring on to them. Yeah, well, yeah, and they have they do have wild animals, but not, Yeah, but um, there's not the specific language yeah. that we see. Well, they have a explanation for this. Ken Ham was asked about it. Can I, as a scientist, can I make a prediction? Yeah, that? go ahead. <laughs> make a prediction. Ken Ham is going to say that this just supports the biblical narrative yep. because it it just confirms oh look, here's another ark. The problem is we still haven't discovered the text of Genesis that's older than this uh, Babylonian text, uh, which includes the real story of Noah. That's essentially what he says. I mean, this is (laughs) popping up on creationist blogs all over the place as proof of the Ark story, even though it's (laughs) not even close. Uh, and yeah, story. Ken, Ken Ham said it's uh, it's basically it's the other way around. The true account really happened and that's why you hear all the cultures of the world have this flood myth. Mm-hmm. It was uh, corrupted by the Mesopotamians right. but the Bible shares the true account. See, that's what so, they did with the, with the mythology uh, of Jesus like the early church yeah. fathers when they had all these other things floating around would say, oh yeah, those things – you know, were predated, uh, or they were um, they predicted Jesus coming, or that they were like misplanted by the devils. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's nothing new to do that sort of like. Yeah. Oh, we have earlier versions. Somebody else on the Ken Ham's Facebook page posted the same thing. This is just another clever attempt from Satan to try to disprove <laughs> or distort the existence of the art. That's got to be a Poe or whatever. Uh, a, uh, <laughs> that's not what on I Ken Ham's Facebook page. Fishing, what do you yeah. call that? That could be Ken Ham himself. Isn't that a post law that you can't distinguish between – in this yeah, case, it would be from right. genu- from trolls it w- faking it and from genuine fundamentalists? It would be hard. But yeah, so I mean essentially making this unfalsifiable, right? You can't even show previous versions of the story and prove the biblical – Nothing's going to change his mind, Jeremy. Ah, but here we go. This mm-hmm. one isn't so falsifiable. So this is going to be the subject for today's short Skeptic Sunday School. Since this is an evolution-themed episode, I thought I might start with an evolution analogy. Uh, Jordan just told us about mitochondrial DNA and how it helps us to trace ancestry back. And I think that's uh, kind of a good metaphor for what we have here with these different ARC texts because you see the – it's really hard to trace ancestry just looking at our DNA, right? Because every time sexual reproduction takes place, you get you know the genes from your mother and your father are – getting mixed up. But luckily we have with mitochondrial DNA, since that is in the organelle of the mitochondrion, it 
basically you inherit that just from your mother. And the Y chromosome. And the Y Why chromosome. Why do we forgetting about the Y? I was going there. Back Screw me up, guys. I was chromosome. going there. He was. He the right, Y. Right. I, I was, was going, going there. there. Y chromosome doesn't have as much information on it, but because it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it just codes for things like beer preference and favorites <laughs> and porn. <laughs> Uh, it's very small. But yes, like the Y chromosome uh, gives us, since it's only inherited down the male side. It gives us gender stereotypes. It gives us gender stereotypes, <laughs> yes. But note, the important thing to get here is when you can trace ancestry down two different lineages. This helps you to figure out exactly what came first, when things diverge. And the cool thing about the Ark story is we have several different sources. So what this requires is some knowledge of the Ark story in the Bible as being already a composite of different sources. So I don't want to go into all the evidence for the documentary hypothesis. Uh, if you're interested, go back to our uh, episodes on the unity of the Bible or the disunity of the Bible, rather, parts one and two, and we talk about the evidence for that. What you notice in the biblical flood account is a lot of details get repeated. It seems almost like there's been two stories that have been meshed together. And in fact, actually, when you look at some of the details that are duplicated, if you try to s separate out these two texts or doublets, when you do, you find out that they both form coherent narratives mm. themselves that when you integrate them actually create contradictions. So f for example, the the J source, the Yaoist source, which is the earliest of the two in Genesis, has just two of each kind of animal brought on the ark, whereas the P source, the priestly source, which is later – that has two uh, two of each animal plus seven of these clean animals. In J, it just rains 40 days and 40 nights. And in the P source, it rains plus the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep are opened up. In the J source, it's just 40 days of a flood. In the P source, it's 150 days of, of raining mm. during the flood. Uh, so in other words, there's all these details that contradict in the text that when the sources are pulled apart, seamless, unified narratives. So the Noah's story is already a combination of two different texts, but what I found really interesting looking into this with some of the other Mesopotamian texts, it appears that J and P in the Bible actually select from different nar – from narrative traditions about the flood that you can find in Mesopotamia. For example, the earliest biblical text, the J source – seems to pull its details directly from Atrahasis, the earlier of the flood narratives in Mesopotamia, Gilgamesh being the – Epic of Gilgamesh being the later Mesopotamian flood narrative. J is the earlier biblical text and it seems to pull from the earlier Mesopotamian text to get all of its details. And you don't find all of these in the P account. So for example – in Atrahasis, the gods find the his sacrifice pleasing after the flood. Atrahasis makes a makes a sacrifice. The gods find the smell of it pleasing and vow not to kill man again. And the reason why is they say they realize man can't help but to do wrong <laughs> because uh, his blood, actually the blood of one of these troublemaker gods, was actually mixed in with the clay that was used to make mankind. It's impossible. They have these impulses in them from their very creation. The J source has the exact same thing. After the sacrifice is made, 
the Lord vows not to destroy the earth again and says that I will never again curse the ground because of man, humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, echoing what you find mm-hmm. in Atrahasis. But when you turn to the P source, the priestly source, which is later, there you find P borrowing from the worldview of the Enuma Elish, which comes later. All the elements from uh, the Enuma Elish that you'll find in the, are just found in this later P source, the priestly source. So, for example, in the P source, God uses a rainbow as a sign that God will not send another flood. That's his stamp. In the older Atrahasis version, uh, there is no rainbow. There's a there's a necklace of flies that's given uh, to somebody as a token. Which is pretty great. Yeah, there is. But the in the in the Enuma Elish, Marduk actually after he brings uh, order from the chaos, and the chaos is symbolized in the form of the deep. Uh, this this Leviathan, this beast that stands for the watery chaos. So you see the connection there. Marduk sets his bow in the sky as his token mm-hmm. that chaos has finally been put down. In the Enuma Elish, we hear about windows of heaven and fountains of deep. We get this whole cosmology of the firmament, which is repeated again in the priestly source. So those are just a couple examples of how you can actually see within the biblical account itself two different lineages coming in to influence this text. But here, I want to mention one interesting detail that might not seem to be relevant, but I'll explain its significance. There are certain details, for example, uh, the clean animals that were in these earlier Mesopotamian texts but didn't make it into, say, the the Yahweh's text, the J part of the Bible. And then suddenly these details which were omitted become reinserted into the later text, the P text. So, for example, the, the one I'm thinking of is uh, clean animals – Clean animals are in the original Mesopotamian flood narratives, but they don't make it into uh, the Bible until the P source. The kind of the rule of redaction criticism when you're studying these things is if your scholar changes a text, there's always a reason for it. They must have some motivation to add in or neglect a detail. The priestly source is written after the Levitical code. When suddenly the Israelites have a system of worship that requires them to sacrifice clean animals, the Yahweh's text, which is the earliest one, actually edits out mention of clean animals in their in their one uh, because it wasn't relevant to people who were writing the Yahweh's text. No, there was just been no need to Noah for right? these. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to them, it's not relevant to have these. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, as soon as we see the priestly source pop up. Now there's a compelling reason to have this back in the narrative. Uh, what this shows, I think, is that these other texts precede the biblical account and they are selectively incorporating or excluding elements according to their own agendas. I guess the final point that I would make is that if Ken Ham is serious and he really thinks that these global flood narratives are because – a, a human memory, these different cultures, they remember the to- the tales that were told to them by Noah's descendants and these stories have just been corrupted over time. Uh, if that was the case, then we should expect to see the details of the biblical narrative popping up around the world with some corruptive influences maybe. But generally, 
we would find uh, things similar to the biblical account in these world right. mythologies. That, that would be the seed behind right. all of the other stories. Yeah. What we find instead is that the Bible fits really, really close, hand in glove with these Mesopotamian accounts in, in even the minor details, the specifications about building the thing, the materials, some of the materials that were used. Uh, the, you know, God instructed them to create decks and roofs and the Bible fits the Mesopotamian narratives hand in glove but has virtually nothing in common with all of these other world mythologies. Basically, global flood myths outside of Mesopotamia at most you're going to get is a god commanded the destruction of mankind. And people you don't always it. get that. No. And that a lot of people tend to survive this in boats. Yeah. Which is how you would usually survive a flood, though there are other ways. I was going to say sometimes you don't even get those details. Sometimes it's you know by going to the highlands. Um, I believe China in their flood narrative, it's a very slow flood. It takes like twenty years. So there's this mm-hmm. real struggle for survival, and they you know finally reinforce it's like global warming. Like, uh, yes, water yeah. Road. <laughs> yeah. So they're I mean they're they're very different, and sometimes it has to do with humans being punished and sometimes it's just the gods fighting amongst themselves and has nothing to do with the humans involvement. Yeah, so I don't those patterns of similarities and differences there just do not suggest that the biblical story was the first one. But uh, they do suggest that there really was a worldwide flood, right? No. Well, what they do suggest is that a lot of uh, cultures had problems with had flooding. Had problems with floods, yes. <laughs> yeah. But actually, yes. I mean, that's the areas where you uh, where so. that is the least common, or rather, they have many more things that devastate and destroy their peoples mm-hmm. that they have to worry about ahead of floods. Those happen to be the areas where we don't see a lot of flood mm-hmm. narratives. That's so, true. something to think about for this week's Skeptic Sunday School. Let's end now with a Stranger Than Fiction. Nigerian pastor tries to walk on water like Jesus, then drowns in front of his congregation. Awkward. Yeah, this is the story of Pastor Frank Kabele um, in Nigeria, 35, who... Uh, according to uh, the news source is reportghananews.com, um, uh, told his congregation that he was capable of reenacting the very miracles of Jesus Christ. He decided to make it clear through way of demonstration on Gabon's beach in the capital city of uh, Libreville. And uh, he took two steps and then drowned and was never seen again. That's it. The story also goes on to report of another pastor who um, uh, also believed he could perform miracles and decided to um, reenact the miracle of Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, no. And he was ripped to bones almost immediately. Uh, Here's the thing, guys. Not so much stranger than fiction so much as probably just fiction. It does round out our discussion of Darwinism because these would be the religious <laughs> oh, Darwin no. Award winners, yeah. sort of the equivalent of our snake handlers, of people the... taking themselves out of the gene pool. Yeah. You know, I saw people in the comments doubting this, but I didn't see any well, evidence other than the white hand. Well, um, uh, well, no. Uh, Hemant Mehta, friendly atheist, posted an article about this oh, about a month ago now. This story first came out in 2006 and was all over the web for a while. 
And as we see with these stories, they kind of go and just – but there's no evidence of this church that he was pastor of. There's no – What you forgot to mention is that um, the article also says that his son is a deposed prince in Nigeria. And you'll be getting an email shortly. You you will get an email. Well, tell me the lion story is true at least. You know, I don't see that either. We don't get too often – Stories of Christians voluntarily getting <laughs> should, devoured by lions. Kenjita should be like, no. The lion had just listened to the debate between Bill Nye and Kenjita. So he was an atheist lion now and didn't listen to God yeah, telling him not to eat that pastor. It looks like that is uh, that is actually just straight-up fiction, which as, as fun as it is to imagine that someone died stupidly. Oh, wait, no, that's sad. A lot of times these stories, as as fulfilling as they are for us, turn out not to be. Well, at least we caught this one during the same episode and Uh, didn't have to issue a statement later. (laughs) Yeah, I I was looking over the article again. I was like, really? That's your source? And the article points the source back to all Christian news. So I went to all (laughs) Christian news. All Christian news didn't have the article. I thought, okay, well, this is is fishy. So um, there you go. Not everything you read in the Bible or on reportghananews.com is necessary. Yeah, that's so disappointing. <laughs> but, you know, regardless, I, I think us here in West Michigan have been walking on water a lot lately. I could be a lot like Jesus, walk on water when it freezes. He'll cripple with a prosthesis. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll end it there for this time. Um, in the meantime, you can check us out at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Uh, Jordan, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I have no financial disclosures. No one is paying me to be here. <laughs> Look for Jordan in the street. Um, yeah. He's got nothing to plug. Uh, but thank you very much for uh, for coming in, uh, Jordan. It was nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Nice to have someone who knows what they're talking about for once. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Um, contact us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Uh, hey, Justin, the debate you did recently, did that get recorded? Is that going to be available? Yeah, it was, it was filmed. Uh, apparently it's going to be released sometime today, which is uh, – Sunday before this is okay. So this by, episode's released. by the time this episode is out, people yeah. should be able to find that. Um, I'll probably post it on the on the blog if anyone wants to Excellent. check that out. Okay, there. So those of you who were asking about that, the it was the best thing in the world, by the way. So was yeah. it <laughs> better than Ken Ham? Right. I don't know about that. So um, it, you can uh, check that out, and if you're interested in having a debate in your town or anything else. Also, give us a ring at doubtcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. God, God made my cat swallow a rubber band. Oh, that's the worst. No, why, Lord, why?